Hooray! It's the Happy Times and Places podcast. It's actually just Happy Times and Places. There's no there. There is, though, Toby Haydoke. That's me, commentating along to episodes and trying to see if I can guess what my special guest's favourite things about them are. Hello, I'm Martin Geraghty, and I'm one of the long-standing artists on the Doctor Who magazine comic strip and more recently a member of the animation team on the Missing Episodes Productions. Um, Toby has very kindly asked me to contribute to his podcast, and the story I've chosen is The Horror of Fang Rock from 1977. Well, welcome everybody. It's time for the final episode of Horror of Fang Rock. Uh, The one that features... The Ballad of Flatten Isle by William Wilfred Gibson, which we studied at school. Uh, and I don't know if I knew it first and was impressed that it turned up in Doctor Who, because it's, of course, the last thing in the book, and indeed the last thing in the episode, or whether I knew it from the book. I certainly, we did it at junior school. We did it quite early. But it's a wonderful, wonderful poem. I actually read it for... Um, we we need stuff to go in the, in the in the sort of advert break, as it were, of excess malarkey when we were on uh, when we were doing it during the plague, and uh, uh, and I'd occasionally just do something random that I just thought would be quite fun to do and that would fill the space and that was copyright free because we were on Twitch. So I did I did, uh, I did the Ballad of Flat and Isle. Thoroughly enjoyed it. What a great poem. Um, anyway, uh, and it and it and it serves as a wonderful inspiration for this and a wonderful moody coda as we will see um but before we go in uh, a nod to my very special guest martin gerrity who is uh, a very gifted artist whose work you will have seen in doctor who magazine and in the doctor who dvd range where he designs a lot of the the characters to, to be animated he's a very uh humble and nice fellow who wears his talent lightly and is as much of a fan as the rest of us so what a joy that he's chosen such an excellent story and he's been an advocate for it that I would say is 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 on my wavelength which I'm encouraged by and and I think I got a soup song of a point for episode one don't think I quite got for episode two even though we'd skirted around the same areas we did share a point for episode three so it's all to play for because episode four as regular listeners will know, the final episode uh, requires me to come up with a bonus thing as well as my favourite thing from this episode. So I'm going to accentuate the positive uh, uh, whilst swimming through the bloodbath that is Horror of Fang Rock uh, episode four. Um, And let's see what joy I can glean from the Doctor Who story uh, with... Uh, the highest casualty rate percentage-wise uh, of its characters. In that, yes, there are there are stories where more people die, but uh, there aren't stories where uh, just this once rose, everybody dies. <laughs> so um, let us. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna line this up and go back. And uh, I'm on BritBox. You may be on uh, the DVD. Not the Blu-ray, as I record this. No such thing exists. But uh, I believe they will all be out uh, one day. Uh, so I've lined up Horror Fangrock Part 4. And 
we are going to press play in three, two, one. Uh, so what joy. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because this very much feels more like the Holmes and Hinchcliffe era uh, than it does the Graham Williams era, which is more light-hearted, which is frankly has, as time goes on, less good production values. Uh, poor old Graham Williams was clobbered not only by the fact that I think Tom, Tom Baker pushed him about a bit. Um, Tom Baker himself gets a bit more wayward, I think, as, as time goes on and as he gets a little bit bored. Uh and there is, you know, there is a, there is an element of Tom Baker that that tests you. I know this from from, you know, I love him. He's my childhood hero. He's been very kind to me, as a, as, as an actor and as a as somebody I've, you know, had the pleasure of doing professional engagements with and alongside, uh, and as a, a an email correspondent. But uh, you know, I, I think he likes to test people. I've certainly had that experience where I've had to go, oh, he's, he's not making this easy. And he's quite enjoying not making this easy. And I don't think he knows he does it, but he, he can. So, that you know, he's a complicated figure. Um, and I didn't quite realise how scary he was as a doctor. When I was a kid, I just loved him because he was Doctor Who and he was funny and he was otherworldly and he had wide eyes and was exciting. But it's it's that extra element of danger that he gives that really makes him so. Poor old Vince here, having having had quite a a, a big a big part of the drama. Um, I mean, is is polished off almost immediately that this episode begins, and I think that's very very sad because he's a lovely lovely character. But I suppose he thematically signed his death warrant by taking Lord Palmerdale's money. But and that's that's kind of you know he's he's out of the drama. Then he did. If you look at what he actually does in the story, it's not an awful lot. Uh, you know, come episodes once once Palmerdale's gone. Um, so I suppose. You know, it needed to get him. I remember Tom Baker being quite admiring of L- L- Louise's um, using of the shovel here, saying that you know a, a, a lesser actress would have would have been more assured in the using of it, um, and and he's quite right. Um, um, but yeah, so poor old Vince has gone, and this means something for the credit. I've just remembered when I started watching old episodes, I think episode four of this was somewhere was on a tape with something else so episode four was the first episode of this i watched and then i watched episodes one to three later god why do i ruin things for myself so um so yes that's right because the credits for this are in a slightly different order they do uh a rare thing because normally you know characters are unless it's order of appearance which is what happens in the 60s um um this is a good idea this, i like i like that uh, leela's coming up with a good idea um uh the, the the credits here they decide to shove vince and lord palmerdale a bit further down because vince dies early and lord palmerdale is dead 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 um so that the actors that do a little bit more move up the credits and that seems to me logical and sensible but that's unusual usually if you're you know if you're second guest credited actor you are throughout your your appearances there are anomalies uh, i've accounted for them all in my uh i've also done a podcast on credit order in doctor who because i'm a terrible terrible example of humanity um all of this dialogue and interaction between the doctor and leela is great that's the beautiful thing about uh 
episodes. Like, I mean, look at that. He's as he's reasoning. He's not only get getting out the the exposition and going right. What I've got to work out what's happening. He gives it that real sort of visceral import uh, as as he realizes the consequences. Um, uh, so yeah, so I don't I I can't remember the details of why this was the first episode of this I watched, but I think in retrospect that was a shame. But it was it was that thing of if I'd got it and it was available and I and I got to experience, uh, you know, the characters and what it looked like, then then I then I then I you know then I then I would, uh, which which seemed more important to me than sort of experiencing the story in order. Um, Oh, poor old Harker. And we must fight for our lives. <laughs> and, uh, oh, poor old... But even that isn't played too stupid, even though you've got Leela sort of casting her eyes skyward. I still sort of believe it, you know. Adelaide is from a particular time period and is highly strung. And I'm and actually, during this process, uh, uh, I remember once with a friend talking through, go, you know, is there a Doctor Who performance? Uh, is there a Doctor Who story that doesn't have a at least one bad performance in it this was years ago we were doing this and uh and we usually found one uh i would be more generous now um and that that was an effect that i never thought that quite worked i know it's been slightly tarted up for the remastering but actually that looks pretty good um but again ruben is doing uh what what skinsale did in the previous episode where he sort of just you know casting his eyes slightly downwards or, or in a slightly different direction he would see the thing he's looking for but he doesn't bother but you know that's a it's a sort of television staging thing that you get used to but um but and i remember my friend saying oh no no you know Adel adelaide in horror fame rock when i said oh there's nobody bad in horror fame rock i actually think i've i've really appreciated her in this i loving colin douglas's terrible face which i've not really thought about too much before when i well watch this you just go well it's just being the alien but actually that that sort of cadaverous grimace you know it's 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 sort of bright-eyed and it's cheerful but it's also like a death mask and that that juxtaposition is greatly doctor who you know cheerful death that's doctor who <laughs> uh, death and laughter um and you've got all this plot stuff going on with the Doctor here because he's got that he's got that beacon and all of that, which you don't, which you know, which is actually less important to the story than than the sort of the characters in peril here. So poor old Adelaide there gets, you know, she's not particularly much used to the story anymore. So, she, you know, she's she's gone. Uh, but I think Annette will actually did a really good job with a with a hard character there. She's supposed to be annoying, but. But she doesn't ever make you think. Oh, God! I don't, I'm, I'm uncomfortable watching this. I'm annoyed watching this. She's she's annoying to exactly the right level and the right pitch. Uh, and and they, as I say, they even get away with it with the sort of wah, 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 she's fainted and Leela's slightly annoyed. It, it it it's real. I believe it. Um, now this is, I think, probably where there's a weakness in the story, isn't there? With um, where we go, we now have. Now, every time I've watched it before, it's felt like 10 minutes. It's probably about three. Um, but, uh, yeah, where he's going to change him. And I remember this line from the book. I remember Reuben the Rutan. So that then when I, from flicking through it, so that then, of course, when I started reading it, you know, I knew where Reuben is actually, you know, the, the sort of the main protagonist in the lighthouse, really, in, in the first episode. To me, his card was always marked. He was always the the bad guy even though he's not actually a bad guy at, at the beginning so again that's that's another example of when you c come at these stories 
not fresh because you've read about them or you've read about the characters or you've read the book or you've read the episode endings in the DWM episode guides. Uh, again, oh, to come to this stuff fresh. But then again, when I discovered the things about them for the first time, uh, oh boy, they were exciting. Um, now, the proportions aren't great here. Uh, it's it's not quite rationalised properly. There's actually nothing wrong with the with the the monster i like the sort of wispy white stuff and the and 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 the fact that the the green the the green as terence dix would say is not just green it's got the sort of luminescence and the fluorescence about it i think that's in that's an intelligent choice but uh, and and this has got some wonderfully well we'd we'd say Holmesian, wouldn't say, wouldn't we but um uh, terence dix is i think not given as much credit for for being equally good with world building and with jokes as as, as Robert Holmes, it's just that uh, Dix writes fewer actual scripts, um, and I don't like your face either. <laughs> but all this stuff about Mutter's Spiral and all of that, and the fact that they've decided to go and actually, you know, why don't we have the monster as the monster that fights with the Sontarans? I can't quite rationalise if I think about it, and I know Shakedown decided to uh, the, the spin-off video uh, had the the Sontarans and the Rutans in it together, but the Rutans in it together. But but Doctor Who has never had that face-off. And they do seem to be from different genres, really. The the sort of warlike, <coughs> clone, militaristic Sontarans <coughs> and the shape-shifting jellyfishes. Although Dix does in the, in the dialogue that he gives, you know, the, by them referring to themselves as a group entity and a we and... Uh, and all of this, and, the, and there is some militaristic stuff about the mothership and all of this that that, that gives them, that does give them a, 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 a sort of certain speech patterns that, that make them seem perhaps more militaristic than a, than a shape-shifting jellyfish kind of suggests. It's a bit like in Cold War when the, the ice warrior becomes, you know, a, a thing scuttling through the air ducts. It's sort of like, I mean, I'm a bit... Uh, it, those two things seem to me to be slightly incompatible. Uh, if you, you know why, why have you got the the big armored militaristic thing being being that monster? In the same way as you go, why why have you decided that the one to be the arch enemy of the Sontarans is is the, is the one that seems slightly, you know, it's I, they they don't they don't quite match in this in 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 the in the same way. But I, but I like it because what it buys us is a nice little thing that just knits the Doctor Who universe together. This could just be a, a monster called a Zingzong or whatever, but the fact that Dix has made it connect with the Sontarans, even though their connection with the Sontarans has nothing to do with the story or it's done you or anything to do with it, it's it's just like the, it's like the bit in The Awakening where they find the, the, the Tin Clavic. It just ties it in for no other reason than just to, to knit the Doctor Who universe together. And I, I like that. It doesn't, you, you know, non-regular viewers, it, it will go over there. They won't think they've not been privy to something. And regular viewers get a, 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 a nice little moment. Um, and Yeah, but I, uh, I, uh, I got through the big chat. I remember it's in the Tom Baker years, isn't it, where I think they have that bit on the video and he goes, oh, that's, a, that's got a lot of chat. Uh, and I think he... He does kind of, uh, you know, point out that that the story does kind of stop while uh, the Doctor and the Rutan sort of uh, 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 e e explain stuff to each other. Um, but you know, it's Tom Baker doing it, so it's okay. And it's our first proper look at the monster, um, even though, as I say, the proportions are slightly 
mixed. Uh, I, 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 I'll live with it, but I think it is a, a slight Achilles heel in the day. Right, and here he says, it's an early shamerly, and I think it's pronounced shermerly, but that's Tom Baker going, wouldn't it be witty if I said early shamerly? As he's also said, I'll say chameleon factor, even though because it's about shape-shifting, it has to be chameleon because he's referring to and I know a chameleon doesn't change. Somebody's written it written in when I was talking about Sylvan Nemesis. But, you know, chameleons are famous for blending in with their surroundings or changing colour or whatever. And the chameleon circuit is the TARDIS blending in with its surroundings. So the chameleon factor is about changing shape, is about adapting to your environment. And he's, he's said that lovely thing earlier about, you know, they, they bred in the sea but adapted to land. And so it's this this. So that ties in actually very nicely with the idea of, well, why is it a shapeshifter? Oh, because it's a creature that has gone through an evolutionary process. And maybe part of that is now if it, you know, if it's, its evolutionary process means that it has a, 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 a sympathy with being able to, you know, bend its shape around its surroundings in order to camouflage itself or whatever. And that gives us the who goes there, the, the, the devil amongst us, the uh, who can we trust element of this story which could have been actually played slightly more it's it's it's, you know it's not like the thing where there's you know suspicion on everyone around the corner but it does give us the the lovely cliffhanger and 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 the way of of having the creature uh, among them in the shape of reuben um uh, but it's not you know it's not as it's not as at the forefront as as the shape-shifting of say the zygons but it's a nice it's a nice extra element that fits and it and it and it and it and it, and it, it fits within the actually quite complex jigsaw of what appears on the service quite a simple story uh and i love that tom baker makes leela smile there um because it's a brilliant idea and it means that the lighthouse becomes the key to the destruction of the alien which ties in with the theme of electricity and makes the setting more than just window dressing and then you've got the diamonds that Add to that the diamonds that have been the cause of the dishonesty and the duplicity and the flaws in these characters. Uh, but diamonds tie in with light, and that becomes a focusing thing for the light beam. And it's brilliant. That is so, so crackingly uh, plotted and fits together so brilliantly. It's 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 a, it's a wonderful flourish to make the ending all tie together so neatly and appropriately. Um, uh, but yes, Tom Baker saying early Shamerly and Shamelian factor is because he, I, I, and I've noticed it, and he does this with with certain words on occasion. And you can, you know, and in uh, in uh, Nightmare of Eden, he's going, well, I'll say Hecate because when you're doing the Scottish play or or, or doing various, you know, dramas from that period, the the goddess, you know, uh, uh, well, although they call it, she's called, I think for the verse, she's called anyway, Hecate or Hecate, uh, and Tom Baker's gone, well, I've heard it pronounced Hecate somewhere. Um, uh, and everyone else is going, but it's just the spaceship, isn't it? They'd call it Hecate. We'll call it the Hecate. Tom Baker goes, I'll call it Hecate. And Alan Bromley walks off. So clearly here is, you know, he's, it's part of that, what I was referring to at the beginning, sort of slightly testing. I'll go, well, I'll say Shemillion, wouldn't it be witty? And Paddy Russell's going, have I got the energy to fight this? Because it actually, it, it does actually pull focus from, the cliffhanger slightly because you're going does he mean chameleon um uh and and decides not to fight that battle um and and it comes from i i i was in a green room with tom and he was talking about working with olivier and olivier pronounced the word beryl beryl 
Biril, and, and he said, I rather liked it when he took, took an ordinary word and pronounced it slightly off kilter. It, you know, it pricked up your ears. It made you listen. And so I think it's a, it's a trick he learned from, from Olivier or something that Olivier had done that he, he, he found beguiling, so decided to do it himself. But being typically Tom, I think, decided to do it slightly belligerently and, 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 and to test people. Uh, uh, now, I like early Shemirli. I'm not wild about Shemirlian Factor, although it does sound good, Shemirlian Factor, but even though it's wrong, it actually looks wronger with the subtitles because you know what, you can see the word written down. You go, What's he doing? Um, but that's, that's my theory of where, and I think I've asked him about this uh, in an interview I've done with him for a future project. So listen out, because I think I do ask him about Beryl and Shemelian Factor and early Shemirli. Uh Oh, and I hate this bit because it's such a needless... I mean, why is the Doctor done that as well? The Doctor's partially responsible, but it is... It is but it's appropriate. Skin sale... The man of honour, the military hero, the hero, the one that knows death, but the one that, you know, has to protect his honour and that we like because he's sardonic and he's brave. You know, he he teams up with the doctor and Leela and he he comes up with the idea of the diamond. You know, he's the he's the guest, you know, he's the guest hero. Uh, Die scrabbling around for money, uh, for jewels, for trinkets. Uh, Now, and in the book, this is slightly different because... I'm sure she says, uh, where's Skinsale? And he says, dead. And she goes, with honour. And he goes, yes. But he's lying to her because Terence Dick says, he, you know, the doctor image of Skinsale scrabbling around, it was not a way to go. But he lies to tell Leela he died with honour to at least give him a sort of fitting, well, not a fitting, but a, 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 a kind report in death, a kind memorial, as it were. Um but Tom's decided to go. I don't know if Tom, I should have checked the script. I have it. Uh, whether in the script it's like that and Tom's gone, I'm just going to say dead with honour and they've gone, fine. Uh, or whether Terence rethought it and just made a slightly different grace note of it in the book, which he's prone to do. Terence quite often uh, corrects mistakes uh, in the book. He ties up loose ends and maybe thought, actually, that's a better way of doing this dead with honour bit is to actually make it a lie to Leela when she asks um, she introduces the concept of honour and the doctor goes uh, yeah okay uh, which I think I think works slightly better because I think it, it, it highlights the concept of, of honour and the irony of it especially when the doctor you know when asked slightly misreports it which I think underlines the sort of ironic nature of the death more than him just throwing out dead with honor so that's one that works slightly better in the book i think the it looks pretty good the uh the the, the sort of grim bits of the rutan flapping about and leaving bits of jelly on the stairs that works very nicely and it's uncomfortable isn't it um leela sort of glorying in the death of her enemy which she would do this is nice characterization Nice people, people that we like, do things that we find distasteful. And of course, in Leela's morality, you know, this is a this is a sneaky, cowardly enemy that disguises itself as people and picks people off without, you know, facing them in battle, as it were. So it is a contemptible thing and she glories in its destruction. But she's also 
the second lead in a children's science fiction show and the you know the sort of fe- empathic female character who we see larging it up over her uh, d- defeated uh, uh, enemy and that I, I like the fact that that makes you uneasy and Louise Jameson is is a is a clever clever enough actress that you you know you don't lose your sympathy with Leela even though what she's doing is disconcerting it's a nice piece of writing I've just watched a series on Disney Disney called The Bear about chefs and um, what I love about that is that all of the characters have nice aspects and nice elements and all of them have terrible aspects and terrible elements and sometimes exhibit both within the space of a scene Um, but it's never and it takes clever writing and acting in order to do that and let it speak for itself and not seem contradictory Uh, but the characters because they're truthfully done uh, uh, it it, it works it never takes you out of it and makes you think that it's wrong I I, I love this I love that uh, that uh, Leela's gone back for a knife and, and now doesn't Tom, does the doctor go back for her? Uh, uh, she's so cool. She, she uh, Yeah, I love the way he sort of runs in to go back for her. She's already gone out. Love little touches like that. And now uh, are, we, are we back on film? Yes, we are. Oh, and I'd, yes, and I'd remembered, of course, um, this is the, 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 the famous sequence of, uh, of, of, Leela's uh, eyes getting changed because she was fed. that's a great model shot as well uh, and actually the effects aren't bad I don't, don't think it's great with the shooting star coming past the uh, the, the 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 lamp room at, you know a couple of minutes ago but it was fine it was fine but that's actually a very very good model shot but this is great again Leela such an interesting fascinating character saying kill me because I'm blind now Again, that says a lot about the sort of cold pragmatism of where she's come from. Um, we don't think badly of her for us, although you know the the you know the idea now that uh, well, and it and it speaks to actually. I won't bang on because it's a pet subject of mine, but it is you know the way that a disability is is, is seen as uh, something that makes you you know le- less able, and and in the cold pragmatism of a tribe like the Sever team, you you know you're better off dead. Now, of course, that is not something that we in the enlightened twenty first century should think about people with disabilities, and we know that people with disabilities are more capable in other areas and shouldn't be defined by the one disability that they have. There's all of that, you know, all of that. Um, but I, I do, I, I, again, it, it's a nice little window into the different morality that this Leela, who is a character that we like and enjoy and who is kind and thoughtful and intuitive and funny, uh, is also, you know, grimly pragmatic about, uh, right, I, I can't see, kill me. Uh, and, and, and of course, the way that the doctor reacts to that is a, is, is a sort of charming juxtaposition to that. I love a model shot. I love a little model TARDIS. And this one's got a slightly out of focus uh, lighthouse in the background. I think that, I, why do I love that more than I love would love it if it was CGI? I don't know. It's something about uh, the, the, the proportions, uh, the, 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 the fact that you can sort of feel it and touch it, the, the, the texture of it. I love that final shot, and I adore the fact. See, Vince gets credited after, after uh, uh, Adelaide there because in that episode, you know, he doesn't survive more than a couple of minutes. Um, 
John Walker's the film cameraman. Uh, he, I had the pleasure of interviewing him recently, but uh, I don't think I asked him about Horror Fang Rock because not, there's not much goes on with it. I think I did ask him and he didn't remember anything about it. Um, Paul Allen, we never... We, uh, I, never I think Phil Newman might have interviewed Paul Allen. But I adore... Uh, I adore the Ballad of Flannan Isle and the little echo that they give it. And it's just a way, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful in science fiction? Now you can do a little li literary reference to something and it just gives it a little bit more impact, a bit more import. It, it gives it a sort of depth and a, and a history. And if something's got a history, it makes it old and therefore it makes it resonant. And it makes it atmospheric and it makes it classical. And that's why this working as a period piece helps as well, as well as setting it at the dawn of electricity, which is, you know, thematically apposite. Um, Oh, it's great. And everybody dies. Ha, 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 ha. But that ending is glorious. And, of course, it makes you, if you encounter that poem at school, it gives it an extra frisson when you encounter it. And as I say, I can't quite remember which order, but it's always a poem I sort of like go, oh, and I can quote bits of this as well because 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 it's got the Doctor Who connection. It gave it a slight edge and it made me slightly more interested. Doctor Who engages you. If Doctor Who can connect to something that you're learning about in school, it gives that thing in school slightly more, you know, it gives you slightly more of an interest in it. So in a way, you know, Sidney Newman's uh, desires live on. Um even even if not as overtly as in the way that the storytelling that he imagined, but what it's saying is if you harness kids' imagination, and you know you're 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 making kids' television with with intelligence and written by intelligent people and performed by skilled people, it means that when they link that adventure that so beguiles and entrances and bewitches you, um, if they then invoke something else, that thing is you know gets a gets a sheen of uh, quality by association uh and and makes you by therefore more interested in it and that's great and i think you know doc, and and that's why having you know nikola tesla or uh um you know, mary shelley or, or or any of these people in in doctor who which i, I mentioned two very recent examples um, is you know is important and part of what Doctor Who should be doing and I know some very clever scientific people who were drawn to the science of Doctor Who I'm not scientific at all um, uh, but you know yeah there are poems there are Shakespeare quotes that 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 you know light up for me a bit more because they've been mentioned in Doctor Who so that then when I was doing them at school I perhaps dived into them a little bit further you know uh, whatever it is that's your thing because Doctor Who has such a broad palette and the character is so interesting and so knowledgeable about so many different things. He's a great entry-level uh, introduction to something that might then become your associated passion, as well as presenting you an adventure about a shape-shifting jellyfish that kills everybody. I mean, I, I mean, from the sublime to the ridiculous, eh? Um, but that's why I love popular culture, because... You know, something that's self-consciously high art is can by its nature be exclusionary. Uh, oh, God, I've had free tickets to an art gallery and found that out for myself. Are you sure you should be here? Uh, whereas something that's popular culture now, you can do. You can do stuff that has no pretensions beyond, as Terence Dick said, avoiding putting the test card out. I think he did himself down a little bit there. But certainly lots of television made then and now 
where the people making it are just earning a living and just slapping stuff out there, often with contempt for the audience. I don't think Doctor Who very rarely has contempt for the audience. The people making it are at least trying to have some fun, at the, the, at the very least, and transmit that to the crowd. But at its best, you know, there's so much else going on because the process of writing something that requires such imagination, I think, fires all the other synapses. The process of acting something that you have to make not ridiculous it means that you sharpen up your performance in other areas. Uh, you know, the process of making something where you have to carry off hard special effects or, you know, a, 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 a horror story on a, you know, on, on, on the budget of something that's usually just four people in a room talking about stuff. Everybody has to be across everything. And so I think it, it you know, just just like exercise makes, you know, you're, if you're exercising your arms, it doesn't matter because the, the, the endorphins go into other parts of your body as well. I think that's what working on Doctor Who's a bit like. You know, you're, you're sharpening up your skill in one particular area, but it can't help to influence all of the other bits. And then that sprinkles all sorts of different layers of magic dust on your audience. Can you tell I like the horror of Fang Rock? I'm invigorated by watching that. I haven't been very well lately. I'm still a bit tired. I'm still a bit uh, in sort of uh, in, in recovery, really. And it's taken longer than I would like. I am invigorated by the four episodes I've just spent in the company of Messrs. Baker, uh, Dix, Jameson. Can a, can a lady be a messer? I don't know. Uh, Roe, uh, Douglas, Abbott, Fanning, uh, Caffrey, Woolett, even Ralph Watson. Yeah, God bless. Um, so look, uh, I've got two things, and I've and I'm I'm going to do a podcast about this. I haven't written it yet, but but about getting so close to, 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 to victory and mucking it up. Because I think Doctor Who's a bit like that as well. Because I don't think there is a perfect Doctor Who story. I, th I think it's impossible. And it's partially because the fandom is, is, is so self-loathing that we could never find it perfect anyway. There would always be something to go, oh, but it's a shame about that bit. So it's as much about our symbiotic relationship with the programme. But I, I certainly identify with the idea of... Uh, of, of and, and Doctor Who is, is ramshackle, you know. Um, the Doctor is not the traditional hero. The TARDIS is not the best ship in the fleet. It's slightly broken. You have to hit it with a hammer to make it work properly. I will never quite be good enough for any of the things I do to be truly happy. Uh, I will never be quite successful enough because... And I've had so many great kind of opportunities and things that on paper look amazing, but I've usually messed something up or I take away an embarrassment or I'm I'm slightly ashamed of the way that that came out or for some reason it went really 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 well but then didn't lead to that next thing and I've got no understanding why but because nothing's ever bloody perfect uh and that's that and Doctor Who to me personifies that and the horror for horror Fang Rock has an element of that to it as well but I'm just sort of speaking out loud to remind myself I've got to do an indefinable magic about you know I, I, I had a whole bit in my stepson stole my sonic screwdriver that I cut out at the last minute about the giant rat and basically saying, you know, in every, you know, even in a Doctor Who story that, that fires on all cylinders so brilliantly, there's a bit that just makes you go, oh, why does that have to be so crap? Uh, and of course, in Talons, it's the it's the giant rat. But I think there's there's something in every Doctor Who story that's just a bit that makes you go, oh, I wish that was better. But but 
I think life is like that as well. And I think that that's, that's rich pickings for a, for a podcast about how Doctor Who mirrors life. But how actually there is something, failure is one of the basic freedoms, there is something about not being quite perfect and accepting that nothing is quite perfect that is quite charming and quite freeing and, and allows you to be rueful rather than cross. And I think we are better if we are rueful rather than cross. I'm thinking out loud now, so this might be repeated in the podcast that eventually arrives. Horror Fang Rock, what do I like about episode four? Well, do I say the fact that everyone dies? Is that a thing I like about the story? I think it is. Um, I like the clever denouement that, uh, that, that uses the setting and the light... That, as actually part of the way of dispatching the alien i like the way the rutan speaks i think it 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 gives it a you know it shows some effort has gone and it and it's not too hokey sometimes when people give alien speech patterns it can be a bit particularly in american stuff it can be a bit you know it could be a bit boringly lofty or a bit comically over sincere i quite like the way that terence has just gone i'm gonna, gonna make this thing enunciate itself. I'm going to make this this thing express itself in in slightly different ways. I think that works. I like the fact that uh, the Rutan ties in with the Sontarans for for no purpose whatsoever, other than to just make a nice little thread in the Doctor Who family tree, um, the the little Doctor Who connections. Um, I love the character of Colonel Skinsale. I love Alan Rowe as an actor, uh, and the fact that he was he's one of those actors that. Uh, you know, works with three doctors and pops up in nice bits over a over a, uh, a relatively lengthy period. And the fact that one early piece of detective work I did when I was going through an old spotlight, I noticed that Alan Rowe's spotlight photo was taken by Jeffrey Bailden because you have to credit the 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 photographer in spotlight. And Jeffrey Bailden was taken by Alan Rowe, and I went, "Oh, now is that a thing?" And uh, turned, you know, I was right. Yes, they were they were partners. Um, I told you how annoyed I was in the uh, with the Guardian when when Jeffrey Belden died and it said you know he leaves a brother or whatever but but it doesn't mention you know he you know he he outlived his partner of fifty years Alan Rowe the Guardian said to me well no we spoke to the Cat Weasel Society and it was like yeah well I don't think the Cat Weasel Society uh, I either knew or were particularly enamoured because quite a lot of TV program societies don't give a monkeys about the person outside of the TV show that these people are interested in. And I was very cross because it's basically, a, if, if, and particularly, if, you know, they you wouldn't do that with a, a non-gay couple. It would be no question that somebody's opposite sex partner of 50 years would not be considered worth mentioning. Now, I think they didn't know, but I, 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 I think... I think it was easier to overlook because it was two men. And that's The Guardian, which is a very liberal newspaper and doesn't hide such things. But it just goes to show how insidious some of this stuff sometimes is without us even realising it and even within the most liberal of environments. And they sort of said to me, well, if you want to write in a letter, we'll print it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to. No, I think that seems it seemed to me the wrong way of doing it. It should have been in the main body piece. Um, I, and I just felt they should have just added it later uh, rather than it may be me writing in to point out the mistake. It should just be a correction and a clarification. 
as I'm saying that now, I feel I should have written in, but I was I was annoyed at the time about the way that they'd gone about it. And I work for them. I write for them. Do you know what I mean? I write these things. Um, but uh, yes, it just occurs to me that that's, um, you know, that's just a little sign that when, you know, things are not as equal as we sometimes, I think, pat ourselves on the back that they are. Um, so I I'm going to acknowledge here that Alan Rowe, Colonel Skinsale and Geoffrey Bailden, Organon, Cat Weasel, Big Finish's first doctor, um, were a partnership for, I think, 50 years at least. Uh, Alan Rowe was actually from New Zealand. He uh, played a lot of English gentlemen, but from New Zealand. I love Alan Rowe. I think he's a good... Skin Sale is one of my favourite Doctor Who characters. I think I like those sorts of characters anyway, especially as I am drawn to them, but they reveal to have a hypocrisy underneath. And yet I still can't hate him. And I think that speaks to so much as I referred to earlier about our society and about Englishness and Britishness and class and all of those stuff. So I'm uneasy about why I like that character so much because they don't, Terence Dix doesn't hide his hypocrisies, but yeah, I still really like him and I want him to survive and he's charming and he's funny and he's very watchable. So I think Colonel Skinsale and Colonel Skinsale's, I mean, I hate Skinsale's death, but I'm supposed to hate it. It's an ignominious, horrible thing, and it wouldn't have happened if the blooming doctor hadn't thrown the blooming diamonds down. But it's a great, it's a great part of the story. So, skin sales, death. Can I tie that in with everybody dies? Yeah, because he's the last character to die, and you know you ex you do expect you kind of expect him to survive, really. Um. So the fact, yeah, the fact that everybody dies and the last of them is Skinsale and Skinsale is such a good character and Skinsale's death is so horrible. All I'm t counting all of those things as one thing, just because I'm trying to give myself a chance for once. Um, and I also like the fact that it ends with the echoey Ballad of Flannan Isle, which I think is just the cherry on the top. That's my bonus thing is that coda is the cherry on the top of a particularly <laughs> delicious cake made out of the bodies of the entire supporting cast. So it's a, it's a delicious Doctor Who cake. It's made of some of the most uh, awful, uh, gruesome ingredients, and yet it tastes so good. So uh, skin sale slash everybody dies. I mean, all the characters are great. I love Harker. Har I think Harker's one of my favourite characters in Doctor Who because he's the other end of the scale. He's he's so sort of straightforward but and, and heroic, but in, in a totally sort of undemonstrative way. I like that. I love the bit where they go out in episode three, the Doctor and Skinsale and Harker, and they just do it because they have to do it and there's no question. That kind of sort of underplayed bravery, I like that appeals to the sort of boy's own stuff in me, I guess. Um and then the Ballad of Flannan Isle, which I think, you know, I talked about the educational content of Doc 2 and the fact that tying into something literary literary just gives it a, a bit of heft beyond its sort of popular culture environs. But, I mean, there's so much. Paddy Russell, I think, deserves a, a nod for, for wrangling Tom Baker. I've already mentioned Terrence Sticks. Maybe I should give Paddy the nod. It's so easy to take directors for granted. And her direction is not like, you know, I, I, I probably, you know, I've, I, I know I've picked Michael Ferguson for his because of the way that he moves his camera and the, the avant-garde way he edits occasionally. But but why is, 
you know, mood and atmosphere and working with actors that, that Paddy Russell does somehow not seen as good as camera work that draw and, and, and stunt sequences that draw your attention to them, you know, are, are easier to notice. You know, that a lot of what works there is Paddy Russell doing it, but not showing her working in a way. Oh, should I choose Paddy? Um, ah, so... Everybody dies. Skin sale and his death. Can I tie those together? I think I can. Ballad of Flannan Isle. Bah, 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 bah. Paddy Russell. Um, uh, gosh. Because, yeah, because the directors we tend to choose are the ones who show their working. And, and, and like, like great lighting in a theatre, you know. It's really, really good if you don't come out going, hey, the lighting was good, wasn't it? And I know that Paddy was having to wrangle, well, one, diff different setting because of that everyone had to pack up and move to Birmingham with a, a relatively inexperienced at making this kind of program crew and she was having to deal with Tom Baker and Louise Jameson not getting on and Tom Baker not getting on with Paddy whereas I think Louise liked her I know that Elizabeth Sladen and Paddy didn't get on so much um damn it I'm very fond of Paddy Russell uh she, I've, I've got I've, I've got what's left of her paperwork upstairs in a cat's litter tray uh um, she was cut out. She bought us sandwiches and crisps when we went to her house, and she worked on the Quatermass serials. And this is her last episode of Doctor Who. And she was a woman in a man's world, which is why she was called Paddy Russell. I have a brother called Paddy, but he's Patrick. Um, but she was Paddy because she was Patricia. Because actually, when men saw, if men were to see Patricia on a on a call sheet they would they would have it in their mind to play up before she even entered the studio so she was paddy russell so that she had to alter that mindset that buys into again stuff i was talking about about with uh with Bailden and roe there are sort of little prejudices that uh, i will never have had to have faced but are are worth talking about not because i'm woke uh, or because i'm right on or because actually this sort of stuff was real and is embedded and is still probably part of our DNA, even if it's been watered down a little bit. But it's all where we've come from and it all informs everything that we do. And if you look at a program now and go, well, how come the three main protagonists are women? Or why is it, you know, why does this have to, why is everyone celebrating that it's a woman writer and a woman director? Because we've come from a not too distant past where that sort of stuff would be seen as ludicrous. Why? Well, because you don't get many women writers and directors and nobody's interested in all-female drama, you know, all of that. Um, and we're richer for, for more experience. And, of course, why should one half of the population be ex less expected to be crea creative on paper or to be um, good at d directing? Do you know what I mean? Why, why is that something that is that should be dictated by, you know, whether you're male or female, that seems that seems very odd. But of course, it's a very rare thing. So I'm not being woke when I'm going. There aren't many female directors in the whole history of classic Doctor Who, and I, and I understand that it was part of the time. And I'm not angry with the fact that there weren't. But it's worth noting that there weren't, and it's worth noting what the norms of the time were, and that then reminds us actually how extraordinary it was then that there was somebody like Paddy and why she had to perhaps be quite so no nonsense as she was i found her a bit terrifying but she was lovely she bought sandwiches and crisps i i think i put the terrifying upon her and she could she could give a withering stare i uh, <laughs> i remember when uh, she's got she's got a telesnap of her in uh, dr korjak and the children and uh, i said oh did you did you take that 
and she looked at me as if to say well how could I have taken that because I was in the studio doing that when that you know and you go oh yeah um uh maybe it wasn't Dr Cosby but it was something it was something that she couldn't possibly have taken uh, because it's of her on a on a monitor um and she just gave me a that's a really stupid question I was like no oh, fair enough <laughs> um but yeah she could she could put you down with a stare but she was lovely she was lovely and she uh she she wasn't the best interviewee. She's quite monosyllabic on that uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs track, which is why in the final episode that we had with her, instead of talking about what's going on on screen, fortunately, because I knew about other stuff from her career, because I'd already interviewed her about Quatermass and we talked about her early days, we, we talk about her whole career. And I know some people go, why don't they talk about Invasion of the Dinosaurs? Because she was going yes and no. That's why. And we improvised on the day. And I think we did a damn good job because um, because if you if you looked over the the filmed interview we did with her, you know, uh, a, a lot of her replies were quite succinct and to the point. Um, so look, yes, the more I think about it, it's Paddy Russell's last episode of Doctor Who. She was a trailblazer. Uh, she was one of very few females in key positions in in classic Doctor Who. Uh, but that's and that's not to patronise her and say, well, that's a reason to choose her. But it's it's worth noting worth talking about she is i think one of the premier directors of classic doctor who i mean she does the massacre invasion of the dinosaurs which you know dinosaurs aside is an excellent story and pyramids and horror are just chef's kiss doctor who so yeah sorry ballad of flannan isle although i love you you're not a you're not a big you're not a big enough moment although you cast a shadow beautifully over it you cast the shadow of the lighthouse back upon the previous four episodes so it's beautifully done and tom baker is the doctor you want to be reading the ballad of flannan isle i love it but i love paddy russell i think just a little bit more and i think feel duty bound for paddy russell to be my bonus thing and for skin sale slash skin scales death slash the fact that everyone dies, which I know is a slightly cheeky thing to evoke for my thing for episode four. But I want to give myself a chance to win. And wouldn't it be good if I was able to win uh, whilst uh, whilst surviving, <laughs> which most people don't, the four episodes of the horror of Fang Rock. Not the, the horror of fang rock martin garrity is going to tell us his favorite thing about episode four and his bonus and on to part four um after the plot has been resolved and the routons have been um sent packing um the episode ends with uh, tom uh, reciting the ballad of flan and isle by wilfred gibson or a, a part of it anyway um which very neatly and spookily rounds the story off um and you do tend to wonder what on earth the rescue party are going to make of of all the carnage they find in the lighthouse when they eventually go to investigate various uh, unexplained deaths and dead bodies scattered about the place. Um, so in summary then, for me, Fang Rock is a quintessential Doctor Who comfort viewing if a story where everyone else dies can be considered comfort viewing. It's tense, scary... Well acted, brilliantly plotted and utilises the BBC's design department to great effect. Um, Tom and Louise in particular are superb in it. Uh, Leela has so many great moments, uh, disrobing in front of Vince. I am no lady Vince, she says, which is brilliant. Um, slapping Adelaide 
um, when she gets hysterical, which she does a lot, and uh, gloating at the dying Rutan as it slips down the stairwell like a smashed egg. It's, uh, it's a wonderful story, and as ever, it's been a pleasure to revisit it. So was Martin's bonus thing to me, it sounded like, the, the Doctor and Leela. I don't know if he, if he explicitly stated a bonus thing there. So maybe this time, because last time I thought Just Jerk of it hadn't done a bonus thing, and he had, I think this time maybe. But from what Martin was saying there, I think that, you know, the Doctor and Leela maybe were his bonus thing, which I suggested in episode one. But, of course, I rejected the Ballad of Flan and Isle in favour of Paddy Russell. So I lost. I fell at the final hurdle, but I did so doing the right thing. I did so by going with my heart. Uh, but nothing encapsulates more what I press presaged the whole thing with by going, I usually screw up frustratingly at the, at the last minute. Uh, and I mean, frustratingly, not just because I chose the wrong thing, but because I actually chose the right thing. And then at the very last minute unchose it and chose something else instead story of my life but at least it's only a podcast and it doesn't really matter because it's not the winning it's the taking part i think that's going to go on my tombstone <laughs> here lies toby Haydock. it's not the winning it's the taking part and he took a part in a lot and never won anything um but uh i uh, the, the winner here is is horror of fang rock it's a brilliant story I, I like the fact that martin and i were kind of on you know we're, 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 we're pretty much in the same same environs with the things that we enjoyed uh, although i like i interesting because he's a cartoonist he's got a great way with words there hasn't he i liked him describing the rutan falling down like a slippery smashed egg or whatever and he uh and he described a few things in some of his other choices uh with a lovely turn of phrase so he's been a delightful guest uh as martin uh who is a very very nice chap uh check his work out online i think you can buy some of his work uh online his doc two comic strip stuff um and of course you know give him a salute when you watch the the doctor who animations and when you see his work in doctor who magazine he's a he's an important contributor to the uh the you know surrounding universe of Doctor Who and a very nice fella to boot and a great guest for happy times and places. So it turns out I didn't have to hunt very high or very low uh, to find the uh, the life at the heart of this podcast, uh, which uh, which uh, you know has has I think ended on a perhaps a slightly more positive note than the story that houses it, where uh, everybody, where nobody makes it out alive. But we all have, and we live to podcast another day. So I'm going to go walk Bernard the dog before it gets dark. My other half's not here. So I'm going to take Bernard out, and what I will, <laughs> what I will do is I will leave a door ajar, an untouched meal, and an overtoppled chair. Well, thank you very much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydoke. My special guest this time around is Martin Geraghty, whose work you can find in the pages of Doctor Who magazine, on the DVD animations, and uh, online. 
I'm grateful to Martin, lovely fella, and to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. And they include Kazin, Jakob Lumley, Daryl McLean, Philip Marsh, Joe McLachlan, Glenn McLeod, Steve Manfred, Nick Mellish, James Miller, Phil Mitchell, Justin E. Monaghan, Chris Murphy, Paul Murphy, Andrew Nixon, Tom Neenan, Steve O'Brien, Jeremiah O'Connor, Andy Parkinson, Phil Pascoe, Richard Patey, Ken Patterson, Thomas Payne, John Pettigrew, Mary Ann Placati, Liam Price, Ian Radford, Peter Reed, Paula Reynolds, Murray Robertson, Alex Rowan, and Darren Rule. The music is by Dave Gates, the artwork by Dylan Patterson. Well, go on then. You could become a patron and have your name read out on the closing credits like that uh, for as little as £3 a month. Um, There are higher tiers, and the higher up you go, the more often your name gets mentioned in the credits. But other than that, all the bonuses, early releases, your own special podcast called Far Too Much Information, uh, and... uh, exclusives, AMAs, uh, pictures of my dog. They're all available at the lowest tier, which is £3. But whatever tier you sign up to, you can get a 10% discount if you sign up for a year in one go. That's at patreon.com forward slash Toby You can also go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby if you don't want to sign up to a monthly commitment. And you can follow these podcasts on Twitter at Haydoke Podcasts. But look, the Kofi thing and the Patreon thing, they're just the way that we do things these days as uh, more and more of us are taking to the airwaves and making our own content and um, I was going to say leaping over the gatekeepers, leaping over the gates and punching the gatekeepers in the face as we do so uh, and just bunging our stuff out there. But of course, that means, uh, you know, we need to uh, we need to uh, come to you, cap in hand, and say uh, if you like this stuff, if you could throw some pennies our way, or in my case, my way, this way, on Patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock or Kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. It sounds like a hustle. It's uh, as I say, it's just that it's a really awkward thing to do. But there we go. I'm not the only one doing it, and uh, it uh, helps me to. Um, you know, do things these things properly, hopefully produce them to a professional standard, uh, and um, I keep these ad-free. I mean, let's be honest, I keep them ad-free anyway, because I don't like podcasts with adverts in, but if, but, but contributing um, makes that a sensible decision rather than a stupid one. But I don't, yeah, but uh, I'm not going to have adverts, but, but at least... <laughs> But um, at least justify my naivety. <laughs> but look, seriously though, um, bills are going up, nights are drawing in, the world's going down the toilet, and not many people have much spare money for fripperies, and I totally understand that. What does help though that costs you nothing is to go to iTunes, to Podbean, to Spotify, all the places where you can score these podcasts, five stars. Toby Hedrick's Times Travels, five stars. That really helps. It sexes up my algorithms and, uh, you know, makes them all painted and gorgeous. And, uh, and to, uh, let's leave that metaphor there. Um, uh, and as well as five stars um, for, for, for tweaking those old algorithms and making them poke out. 
um, a few lines saying why you like these so that passing punters go, oh, I might have a bite of that cherry, um, would be very useful and helpful. And as I say, costs you nothing but a little bit of your time. Uh, well, I've disappeared down a rabbit hole. I, I've, um, uh, I was supposed to just be um, sort of finishing this off, but Chez was downstairs, and so I didn't want to record uh, while she was making a noise. So then I started doing something else that would take me a couple of minutes while she was just getting her bits and bobs together. And I think it's, t- I think that took me about forty minutes. So I'm now doing this because I've got to go to bed. Um, but and and because I'm going to Buckingham Palace this week with Cherily because she has been bestowed an MBE. She's going to be a member of the British Empire, um, which all sounds very grand uh, and is um, a deserved nod to her for the work that she has done representing disabled people in television drama and not just keeping that to herself because she set up a charity which gets disabled people access to the arts and has got the industry to sign up to a pledge to use more disabled talent, to audition disabled actors for roles, to use disabled actors behind the scenes and to improve uh, disabled creatives behind the scenes and to improve the accessibility of the industry uh, to disabled people who are all too often overlooked uh, and uh, you wouldn't believe some of the access issues uh, at, a, at a basic level that uh, have been very badly done. But she's got pledges from some major companies and she's got major companies doing mentoring schemes and, you know, famous people uh, doing mentoring for up and coming disabled talent. And because of that, she's been awarded an MBE, which means we're off to Buckingham Palace and I will s- stand behind in her shadow whilst she gets all the uh, deserved credit. And uh, I, I go, well, um, I, got, I got a few downloads from a podcast about Peter Haining. It's not a competition. <laughs> but put it like this, I perhaps need to improve my game. Um, but anyway, yes, very proud of her. And isn't that nice? So that's what I'm up to, uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed doing Horror Fang Rock. But if if you are after another podcast, I have been listening to one called Dead Eyes. About uh, it's the comedian Connor Ratcliffe. He's an improv guy and a comedian and a character actor. Um, back in the day, auditioned for and got a role in the drama Band of Brothers. But before he filmed his scenes, he was fired by. Tom Hanks, who was going to be directing the episode he was in, because Tom Hanks looked at his audition tape and decided he had dead eyes. And 20 years later, Connor, who I don't know at all, um, has, has gone on a quest to get, sort of get to the bottom of that and to look at the ramifications. And it's a it's a great, well, it's a great quest. It's, it's a lovely little sort of pointless thing that, of course, by being pointless actually proves to have lots of lots of different points that open up all sorts of different possibilities and it captures a sort of actor's life but is also actually quite reassuring about how unimportant seemingly important things are and yet also how important seemingly unimportant things are and it's it's a great piece of broadcasting and I've really enjoyed it so that's what I'm listening that's where that's when I go down my wormhole of other people's creativity at the moment is uh 
is Dead Eyes. Uh, so there's a recommendation for in-between episodes of Toby Hayduck's Time Travels, which is what this is, ending now. <laughs>